Well, hello, I'm Keith of MBT Events. It's uh, July 10th, 2017. Welcome to the 25th MBT Fireside Chat. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, i got to tell you, I'm missing the Euro 2016 soccer final this afternoon, so uh, you know this has to be important, right? Um, with apologies to any Portuguese listening or watching this later, uh, we did used to live in France, so good luck to France. Allez les bleus. Right, down to business. Tom, right, the first question is um, irrational fears about infinity. Uh, again, we've talked about this before. A lot of people might be able to very easily relate to this question. It is from Brublon, and he says, When I was around the age of 10, I had a strong irrational fear of infinity. I was deeply afraid of either living forever or being dead forever. I had sleepless nights and was stressed out because I could not imagine a solution to this dilemma. Over the years, I pushed these thoughts away, and now I cannot connect to that fear anymore, although I assume it's still hidden inside of me. You explain that in reality, there is no such thing as infinity. So how can I understand this concept at a being level? How can I connect with this irrational fear of infinity and deal with it now that I am older? Well, the... I think your irrational fear of infinity is really an irrational fear of control. Uh, you feel like if you know the the dead forever or live forever, either either one, that anything is forever, um, kind of leaves you stuck. Right, forever is a very long time, and uh, I suspect that's a fear of not being in control of this just happening to you, and you have no. Um, you, know, you have no input to it. Just something happens to you without your consent, without your input, without your ability to stop it or start it or change it. And that's probably the origin of your of your fear. Not so much infinity, but of the lack of control. And um, the reason you probably can't connect to that fear right now is, is uh, your sense of, of control has probably changed to where you're not tagging this uh, concept of infinity to control anymore. You've maybe outgrown that or moved past that. Now you probably attach other things to control. So your fear of being out of control is maybe expressed in other ways, not in the, not, uh, in the way that it was before about uh, you're kind of on this ride, on this trip without any, any say or any control over it. So how do you know? How do you deal with infinity? Well, you you realize that infinity is a is an ideation. It's a uh, it's an abstract concept of something bigger and farther beyond than than what is possible, if you will. Um, you know, mathematicians can always approach infinity in their mathematics, but they can never actually get there because if you could get there, it wouldn't be infinite anymore. Because if you were there. You can always add something to it, and then it would be bigger than infinity, which, of course, is impossible. So you can never actually exist. You can never actually interact or be at a place like infinity. As soon as you were there, that automatically would not be infinity anymore. So it's just the nature of the concept that it's not a, it's not a real state of being. So infinity is just an idea. It means bigger than anything we can imagine. And whatever we can imagine, it's bigger than that. And the same with forever. 
Forever is just one of those concepts that you could never be at forever. If you were at forever, then it wouldn't be forever anymore as long as time kept ticking, you see. So it's impossible to ever get to forever. Forever is not a place that you can, that you can uh, get to. Just like infinity is never a place that you can be. These are just abstractions. So um, if you see it as just an abstraction, then you shouldn't really have any, any uh, upset or, or fear or, or worry with it. It's not really a real thing. That's why I say that no real system can be an infinite system. Because if it were an infinite system, then we wouldn't be able to be here interacting with it because we keep adding things to it. Therefore, obviously, it wasn't you know, infinite. An infinite system couldn't be added to. So real systems can always add and subtract. Only, uh, you know, infinite systems don't really, you know, don't really exist as real systems. So the sphere of infinity was probably a fear of control, and uh, that's probably something that permeates most people's lives. Most of us, most everybody walking around has this fear of being, quote, out of control. In other words, you know that things ought to happen a certain way. You know what's right and the way things ought to be. That's called ego. But you know that for sure, and things aren't like that. And then it's upsetting. You know, you can't make them like that. You don't have control. You just have to accept things that happen to you as, as things that happen and then deal with it. And nobody likes to just have to deal with what happens to them. Everybody would like to control what happens to them so that they make only the things they want happen to them. And uh, life isn't like that. So it's a, it's a common fear that uh, you just have to learn to accept that uh, life isn't necessarily going to be under your control. And the more you try to control it, usually the more frustrated you get and the less control you actually have. So if you're in a state where it seems that uh, everything is just happening without your, your consent and control, well, that's probably because you have this desire to control it. Once you let go of that desire, you find that everything is just really the way it should be and um, actually almost optimal to the way it could be. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, we have a lot of questions to go through again, as always, and um, this week there seems to be more questions than ever on IUOC. So we're going to start with Luke's question about definitions uh, and understanding the definition of IUOC. Just wanted to remind people that obviously all your MBT definitions can be found on the resources page of the MBT events website. So people probably are familiar with that address already. So Luke's question, understanding the definition of IUOC. It seems I'm not actually an IUOC, only a part of an IUOC. Therefore, after this reincarnation, I technically do cease to exist, and my experience, my free will awareness unit, gets reintegrated into my IUOC. However, Tom mentioned that people who transition have a continual consciousness in that when their avatar dies, they simply switch data streams into a traditional VR if it's needed. From this, it would seem that my PMR and NPMR avatar are one and the same in a way, but just in a different data stream. So, am I my IUOC or just a part of my IUOC? Okay. Let me start with a kind of a larger viewpoint that uh, the IUOC is a metaphor, just as is the larger consciousness system. 
a metaphor, higher self. Uh, all of these things are, are uh, metaphors. So we use these metaphors in order to describe functions of consciousness. So one of the functions of consciousness is the function of accumulation, of taking all of the various lifetimes and all of the experiences of all the avatars and learning from that collection of things. Okay, that's, that's, the, uh, that's one function of it. Another function of the avatar is to have experience, I mean, of the, of the IUOC, is that it experiences. It does have lifetimes in various reality frames, and those frames produce experience, such as the dreaming frame or this frame we're in here in the physical matter reality. So that's another function of our consciousness. So we take these functions, and so we can talk about them and relate those functions. We make up these <clears throat> these metaphors, and we talk about the experiencing function of the IUOC as the free will awareness unit, and that is your sense of connection with your avatar. That's you being the avatar. You're immersed in the avatar's experience. You can only experience what the rule set allows the avatar to experience if the avatar were a real thing. The avatar is not a real thing. The avatar is just ones and zeros in a computer. It's part of a simulation. You are the, the, the experiencer, the, the, the maker of choices for that avatar. Okay? That's a function of your consciousness. And that function we label with the free will awareness unit. The accumulation function of all this experience and then the choice of what to do next, we put that into just the IUOC uh, label, if you will. Now, what's the, you know, how we make kind of the connection between them? When you leave this, what we call physical reality, when you die here, yes, you, you wake up in another reality frame. In other words, you switch data streams, as you said. Now, you are no longer that avatar. Okay? That's done. You don't, you're not constrained anymore to experience just what the avatar could experience if it were real. So now you are functioning with the memory just passed because that's just very, very recent. So you still have some of the memory of that avatar, but the memory starts to fade like a dream. At the same time, you are, that, that memory is fading like a dream. You are reconnecting, if you will, reintegrating yourself with the IUOC accumulation function. Now, notice, I'm breaking this up into different sex, different metaphors, kind of making different pigeonholes so we can talk about the various functions. But it's really one thing. Okay? It just makes it easier to talk about it if we can slice it and dice it into nice, convenient, conceptual pieces. So you reunite, you reintegrate with the individuated unit of consciousness, that part that is the accumulator. And eventually, that accumulation function adds in all, you know, assesses all what you've just brought to it, all the information you've brought to it, with all the information it has from all the other times you've brought information to it, and it then decides what to do next, where it's, where it's uh, lacking, what kind of issues it should be working on, 
And then it uh, proceeds to have another experience packet with another avatar, and that's yet a, a piece of itself. So don't try to make these things, these, these things that we slice and dice, don't try to make these various metaphors all independent, you know, quote, physical, unquote, things, you know, independent things. They're all part of the same thing. Ways of talking about a one thing called consciousness with multiple functions and things that it does. So think of it in that terms. If you want to do it in steps, if you need to do logical processing, then let the free will awareness unit be the experiencer. When that dies, you begin to reintegrate with the individuated unit of consciousness and have a more holistic view of your experience. You're not seeing your total experience as the uh, avatar would see it. You're no longer the avatar. That's done. Okay, so when you say, well, you know, do I continue on or do I exist? A lot of people get kind of hung up on that. You know, is, is there really death or not? Well, it depends on who you think you are. If you think you are the avatar and that's what you define as you and everything else is some other kind of thing, but you are the avatar, then yes, there's death. The avatar dies and that character is gone. That's the end of that character. If you think of yourself in a bigger picture, that, that's just the little picture you. If you can think of yourself as a bigger picture you, which is the individuated unit of consciousness, the IUOC, then there is no death. That's just each avatar is a chapter in a larger book. It's just more information that you gain uh, in, your, in your quest to evolve the quality of your consciousness. It's a part of you that goes out and makes choices in a virtual reality, and you evolve or de-evolve by the quality of the choices. So if you see yourself as that larger you, then no, there is no death. And yes, you do persist. And if you still are so attached to that avatar that you say, yeah, but that avatar, I want to be that avatar forever. Well, it is in the database. That avatar experience that you had with that avatar stays in the database and can be accessed and relived if you like. And it's all there just exactly as you, except it's no longer making free will choices. That's the only difference. It's in the database. So that database lives on forever too. But that avatar making free will choices is done when that avatar dies. The larger consciousness goes on. And I would kind of encourage everybody to see themselves as the individuated unit of consciousness, not as the free will awareness unit that's attached to the avatar. That's the little picture you. The bigger picture you is your individuated unit of consciousness. And then there's even a bigger picture of you yet, which is just one with the larger consciousness system. That is another viewpoint of you. You as one with the whole. So these are all different ways that you can see yourself. And the more you see yourself in a bigger picture, then the more you will deal with your life here in terms of a bigger picture viewpoint. And generally, the happier and, and uh, better off you'll, you'll be. Things like control will kind of disappear when you see yourself as, in terms of the bigger picture rather than define yourself in terms of the little picture. 
Thanks, Tom. Well, I hope that uh, clarifies things for you, Luke. Um, Brublin on the uh, MBT forum submitted a couple of questions. One of them is on IUOC, and this this follows on nicely, I think. Um, Tom, you often spoke about IUOCs returning to PMR incarnations because they get bored in the non-physical, the NPMR. So, to understand the non-physical a bit better, can IUOCs actually commit suicide, or would that concept not make any sense in the non-physical NPMR? Um, that really wouldn't make much sense in the non-physical. The individuated unit of consciousness is, and <laughs> there's, you know, there, it has no body. See, it has no way to to. Um, the rule set that it has doesn't define something that it can kill, if you, if you like. It is information. Now, whether it could somehow, uh, you know, uh, replace all of its information with random ones and zeros and therefore, uh, you know, destroy all of its memory or what, whatever, uh, I suspect not. You know, it, uh, that's probably not one of the things that it can do. There probably is no, uh, you know, delete button on its console. It uh, has a function to do, and that is to evolve. That's why it is there, to evolve and have experience. And uh, deleting itself is not part of serving that function of growing up. So I suspect that that's not an option. So the IUOC just is. It's a piece of the larger consciousness system. And though it has free will to do many things, I suspect to erase itself is probably not one of those things that, it, that is inside of its decision space. You know, free will doesn't mean that you can do everything and anything. It doesn't make you a genie with infinite wishes. Free will just says you can make choices from among the selection of possibilities in your decision space. So that's... Uh, how to answer that? I guess it's, I'm not sure I answered the question right, you know. But uh, hopefully that will that will help him uh, see that bigger picture. I, I think so, Tom. Um, my next question on IUOCs is, is: it looks familiar to me, and maybe we'll have to edit this out if we asked it last time. Um, Fawad, who, who couldn't join us today, had a question about IUOCs gaining power in this physical frame set. Do we remember this question from previous? Oliver, do you remember this question? Um, actually, we postponed it because we didn't understand the entire question. And right. Okay. I, I knew it was familiar. Well, we're going to give it a go, Tom. I'm going to okay. see what we Good. have here, and we're going to cut it down, and we'll, um, we'll hopefully give Fawad an answer this time. Okay. Um, some RUOCs have so much power inside this physical frame set. They either have a lot of money or rule countries. Is this because they know basically what's going on? Are they entities who are very conscious about everything that's going on, the physical frame set that is being a human on Earth, so that they can just come and go? You know, they're building a big structure with banks or money systems over many generations just to rule the game here, which is obviously maybe the the aim of the game for them. So the examples would be um, the royal English family or the English royal family, sorry, the Rothschilds, these kind of people. So uh, what's going on there, Tom? Is there, is there something going on? I see his, I see his question. Uh, he basically wants to know, are the people who are powerful in this physical reality powerful because of their deep understanding and connection with the non-physical. You know, do those two go together? And the answer to that, of course, is no. 
they don't go together at all. The people who are powerful in this reality were in the right place at the right time to be that. You know, born into the right family, uh, you know, went to the right schools, uh, you know, had enough money to go to those right schools, etc. So it's being in the right place at the right time. Um, you don't get to be powerful because you can, you know, go out of body whenever you want to, and therefore you can remote view what all the competition is doing and take advantage of it and that sort of thing. That's not the case. Uh, you get powerful because, one, you want it. That's something you desire. And two, it's within your grasp because of your situation. Again, where, where you happen to be and, you know, in, in, uh, in position and time and place and so on. So, uh, I guess the short answer is no, there's really not much of a connection. I would suspect that most of the people who are very powerful don't have any more connection and abilities in the larger reality system than anybody else, than, than the average person does in our, in our culture. Uh, maybe even a little less because they would tend to be focused on material things very, very uh, much and probably not so much focused on non-material things. So I, I suspect they have uh, no more than and more likely less than uh, that non-physical connection than, than most people have. So no, there's, there's, nothing, uh, there's nothing there to connect those two because you see the people – I can see the, the point that confuses you. You see that, well, if you had those kinds of powers, it would enable you to take advantage here in this physical reality. And maybe that's what these people have done. But it doesn't work like that. In order to have those abilities, you have to grow up to, to have them. And when you grow up, you don't want to take advantage of people. You want to help people. You want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So the people who have the most ability to, shall we say, use the non-physical as, as an advantage in the physical have no interest in doing so. So there's, there's nothing sinister going on there then, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> no, not from the non-physical. There's nothing sinister going on. Got it. Going on okay. Um, Greg, you have a, several questions that you'd like to ask this afternoon, so I'm going to turn it over to you. All right, yeah, so I have a question on non-dualism. And this this actually relates to what uh, you were just talking about with the IUOCs. Um, you, you just, like you just said, that you encourage people to see yourself as your IUOC versus your, your individual avatar. And I've been coming across a lot of uh, non-dual stuff, an example being, uh, like, stuff from Ramana Maharshi, who teaches the traditions called Advaita Vedanta. So for anyone who doesn't, isn't familiar with that, the, the idea that I'm touching on at least um, is to see yourself as, as like everything, like one with everything. And uh, I was also comparing this with your article you wrote on uh, a speaking tree.in entitled One with the One. So there does seem to be a lot of, of crossover. Um, one of the differences I'm, I'm curious about is that he seems to promote uh, like the entire spiritual practice is seeing yourself as this larger and larger and larger thing. It just seeing this illusion that you are separate whatsoever. Whereas a lot of MBT kind of still talks about going along and uh, making your choices as your individual thing. And maybe 
Although, like I said, you did say earlier that it is uh, important to see yourself as this higher IOC. So I'm wondering both what you think about that and also uh, kind of what you what you perceive. Do you, when these teachers say that they see themselves as everything and they see no distinction between themselves and everything, do you experience that or have you experienced that? And do you think that's important to, to, to go for that? Okay. Um, as I said just a little while ago, there are three perspectives you can have on who you are. One of them is you are your avatar. That's the where most people are stuck. The next bigger one out is you are your individuated unit of consciousness. And then there's one out from that, which is you are one, you know, with the one. You're, you're one with, with the larger consciousness system. So you can see yourselves in all three of those aspects. And eventually you should grow up to the point where you can see yourself in all three of those aspects. In other words, you can live any one of those three. Now, to pick one and say it's a whole lot better than all the others and then drop the other two, I think is a mistake, you see. Now, it's good for you to be able to pick any of those three viewpoints of who you are and live from that viewpoint, see the world from that viewpoint, see existence from that viewpoint. When I say see the world, I don't mean the physical world. See, see, you know, your, yourself in, in, uh, in relationship to the whole, uh, from that viewpoint. But there are reasons that we have these three perspectives. There are reasons that we have a perspective here in the physical, in this, uh, you know, avatar, in the very lowest of those three viewpoints, or the, from the, you know, the smaller viewpoint, the bigger viewpoints. We're here to make choices. We're here to be presented with moral choices, with choices that have to do with choosing between fear and love. And this is a learning place. And it's a mistake to say, well, I'm already learned. I'm learned. I know all these things now. I don't ever have to experience that anymore. That is the beginning of your starting to deteriorate, you know, that capability. To keep your entropy low, you have to constantly work at it and to remove yourself from the reality frame where you can most efficiently work at it, where you have the greatest challenges, is a mistake. So in the long term, it's a mistake. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't move into these other viewpoints and just live there for a while or even live there, you know, uh, maybe a larger percentage of your time. That's okay. But I think it's a it's a problem to um, want to let go of this uh, lower level sense of self, view the avatar completely, and say that's just not important. It is important. That's where we have challenges. Again, back to the back to the situation where the holy man who you know uh, is a hermit lives in a cave, and uh, he can grow his spiritual quality along certain lines. But he's very restricted because he's taken himself out of the everyday world. He's taken himself out of those challenges. Or the yogi who uh, you know has nothing to do with the opposite sex. Well, he's taking himself out of a whole series of challenges that are very uh, strong and, uh, and stiff challenges to meet, you see, by doing that. So as you remove yourself from these challenges, 
you're removing yourself from learning, from taking advantage of these opportunities to learn, to keep lowering your energy, keep working on it. So you need to be all three of those places. You need to live in all of them. You need to be your avatar and have these experiences. That's important. And you don't want to let that go. But you also need to have the perspective that the avatar is just a temporary character playing a role. And that your larger consciousness system is really the, the uh, collection of all of those roles. And that's kind of a little higher level sense of yourself. That even as an individuated unit of consciousness, you have to realize that that you, yes, can interact with other individuated units of consciousness. It's you and thousands of other IUOCs that are all interacting with each other, but that you're all really part of the larger conscious system, and you're all part of this bigger thing, and you have to be able to be that too. So my sense is that you don't let any of those go. You have to pay attention to the cumulative function. You have to pay attention to the, to the uh, avatar experience function, and you need to pay attention to the fact that you are one with the whole. You're just part of a whole thing. So I think all of those need to be with you all the time, and each one has its own function, its own place, and none of them are inferior, really, or superior to the other. They're just three different views. Uh, they all have their own function, and they all need to be lived completely and fully. So it's not really impossible it's not even really all that difficult to be in all three of them at once to where you're interacting here in the physical and you need to do that because if you no longer do that if you don't see yourself as an interactive player here you lose your opportunity to be helpful to other people to be helpful to them you have to be aware of them you have to be aware of their needs you have to be aware of their viewpoint of where they are where they're trying to go what their struggle is so awareness of other is important to be helpful. And if you've given up being helpful, I don't need to be helpful here anymore. Well, I'd say you've already started to backslide a little because being helpful here is part of what you're, you're, you, know, you need to do. It's why you're here. So you don't want to brush that off. So you can do that and also be mindful that you're one of a bigger system, that you as an IUOC are just a, an expression of something larger. And you can walk around every day with all three of those things in your sense of awareness and being all at the same time. And I'd say that is probably the more uh, uh, profitable or the better way to be rather than picking any one of the three or any two of the three and just exclusively staying there. Stay mindful of all three of your you know, levels of being and use all three of them to maximum advantage to evolve yourself. So does that, does that help you, uh, Greg? Yeah, that does. That's, that's actually super interesting. I've never heard anyone quite say it quite like that to suggest holding awareness of all of them simultaneously. Um, what, where I'm still getting a little bit confused is that uh, when people describe having the experience of being one with all. And I've had like a very brief experience like that in that moment. Uh, my avatar was not any different from anyone else's avatar. So like when I had that wider perspective, I was totally forgetting that I was Greg versus being somebody else. So I'm kind of mm -hmm. wondering if 
you're actually living in that view, having part of your awareness in that viewpoint is being the one, what is mm-hmm. even making you more connected to being Tom rather than being just, just anything else? Like I'm, I'm getting confused how the, the idea of awareness focused uh, on one person can still be there if you're, if you're also holding it where that you're not really any more that person than anyone else. Well, you just have all of them together. Let's give, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, you have certain roles that you play. You are perhaps son to parents. You are perhaps husband to wife or father to children or employee, you know, to boss or to you know, whomever you work for. You play all those roles and they're all different. When you are employee to boss, that's a whole lot different than being uh, son to parents or, uh, you know, father to child or whatever. There's different roles. But yet you were all three of those all at the same time. And you don't confuse them. When you're with your boss, you don't you don't uh, try to relate to your boss like that's your father or your mother. You know, you just don't do that. It just doesn't seem like it's the right way to do it. But it's not that you forget that you're a son or that you're a father, you see. Or a friend, you know, you have all these different connections with different people. And you will have, you know, if you have 10 friends, really good friends, you relate to all 10 of them differently. You're a little bit of a different person with all of them. Some you sit down and are very intellectual with. Others you are more cut up and, you know, joke around with. They're just different relationships. And it's not like you have to only be one of those at a time. You're all of those all of the time. While you're a, while you're an employee, you're also you know a father, and you're also somebody else's son, and none of those go away. You just shift your energy into various roles that you play as required, but you can be all of them at once, right? You don't have any trouble being a you know an employee, a father, and a son all at the same time. Well, it's just like that. These are different. Uh, these are three different perspectives, three different viewpoints of the world. Three different uh, ways that you are, relationships that you have. You have a relationship to the whole. You have a relationship to your individuated unit of consciousness. And you have a relationship to, you know, the avatars in your life, to your avatar and all the other avatars you interact with, the IOUCs and all the other IOUCs you interact with, and the one. So it's just not a problem being all of those at the same time. You're just aware that they're all there, and sometimes your attention maybe focuses on more of one than the other, but it doesn't exclude the other. It's just you. In other words, you are a multidimensional being. You have relationships in multidimensions and multi-viewpoints, and you have to see yourself as a multidimensional being, not just a single kind of being with a single kind of relationship. That's limiting. It's less limiting if you're all of those things. So, yes, uh, when you feel like you need connection to the whole, you can do that. You just meld into that role with the whole, and there you are, just a part of the whole. Have no individuation, really. You're just one with everything, and you feel everything, and you sense everything. You even have the sensation that you know everything. You're connected to everything, and love is all there is. It's the only feeling that you have. And you just do that. And that's nice. And it recharges your batteries in a way nothing else can. And knowing that that is the most fundamental truth is very freeing. 
very, uh, you know, enabling. And then you also are aware of yourself as the, as the IUOC, you know, this, this evolving, continuing, um, uh, persistent awareness that goes on and on and on, constantly growing, making better choices, get rid of fear. Now you have a job, you know, to do. You have a mission. Before, you were just one. You had no mission. You were just one with the one. There's no mission there. You just are. Uh, you, uh, you, when you have a, a mission, now you're an you're a individual unit of consciousness. And you have to uh, evolve over many lifetimes. And then you have a mission as an as a, as a avatar within that one lifetime to be helpful, to be caring, to learn to love, to care about all these other avatars that you are bumping into in various circumstances. And each one has its own challenges, I guess, uh, between the, the, you know, the, the bottom two. They both have their challenges to do things and do it well. So I don't see a problem. There is no issue with uh, being all three simultaneously at the same time. Uh, doesn't mean they all have equal share of your attention. It just means you go to where you feel like you, know, you need to be at any particular time. So it's just the, that to me is the, is the preferred way of being. It works best for me for being that way. I can't really imagine limiting myself to a, any single one of those viewpoints because if you limit yourself to a single viewpoint, it kind of takes you out of being a part of the other two viewpoints. And all three of them are important. They're all vitally important. You know, people get the idea sometimes that this physical reality is like, uh, you know, the garbage dump of existence and that we want to get out of here as soon as possible. And uh, it's you don't want to spend any time here and you want to kind of divorce yourself from this, this cruddy, low-level uh, existence. But it's not like that. This cruddy, low-level existence is your main learning lab. This is where you get challenged. This is where you make those choices. As soon as you get into the an individuated unit of consciousness, well, you still get to make choices. You're still conscious, uh, you know, choice-making, but your array of choices are completely different, and your challenges are completely different. There's nobody there that'll step on your foot, you know, annoy you, uh, you know, do things that upset you, that sort of thing. Now you're in a much more uh, cerebral environment that doesn't grab you at the being level nearly as strongly as it does here. And then when you're one with the one, well, all of that goes away. You no longer have any of those issues. All of those things disappear on all the other two levels, and you just are. You're just a piece of the whole, and you don't really have any individuality. And you're really not making many choices. You're just being. You're just existing, kind of choiceless. Well, growth comes in the choices. That's why we have to have these lower levels. It comes with the choices. And the next level down is where all those choices over many lifetimes get accumulated, and the other is where the actual rubber meets the road, which is where the choices are made, mostly which is down with the avatar. So all of those work together, and I wouldn't put any of them as being superior or inferior to the other. They're all part of a bigger plan, and you're just all three of them. So it's not like this physical world is the trash world that we want to get rid of and throw out. It's as important as the other two. It's part of this this hole that is necessary. And that's why I also say that we never get done. 
you never get to the point where you say, well, I can throw away that avatar experience thing because I've already learned everything. That's not good. That's not a good attitude. The attitude should be, well, I think I've learned a lot. Now I'll be better able to help other people. You see, you want to stay involved in that. That's part of your existence. You're all three, and all three are equally important. This idea that we, we get away from the physical, kind of the, you know, the, the garbage dump of, of existence is the physical reality, and then we go up from there, and we want to get rid of it and graduate from it and you know, leave it. That's really not the right attitude. It's all integrated. It's all necessary, and it's all one thing. You don't want to just be floating, connected to everything in this cloud of love. That's nice, but that's not where growth comes from. See, that's your. It's nice to have that awareness, but that's not the thing that makes you keep going uphill with effort. That's not it. That's just your experience of the whole, and that's a wonderful thing. But if that's all it is, you do is just experience and be that one. Well, eventually you're going to start backsliding. And you become less and less grown because entropy reduction requires continual effort. Anything that doesn't put in effort eventually starts, entropy starts to increase all by itself. It's just the way it works. So we need all three of those to maintain ourselves. So, uh, sorry, to, sorry to keep hammering this, but I really want to understand because I'm still getting a little confused in that... Uh, I think at the beginning of this conversation, I would have, you know, maybe I'm getting lost in the metaphors, but I would have thought of myself as like, okay, well, I'm really the IUSC, but I'm, I'm having this experience as the, as the avatar and like, you know, maybe I can experience some of the one sometimes, but it, during, over the course of this conversation, it's almost like, cause you're talking about putting your awareness to these different three levels. And mm -hmm. it's almost like now you're saying that the real you is this fourth thing, which is like the awareness being applied to these three different things. So it's like, I'm trying to like pin down what is, what is, what is you, what are you then? If you can shift between these different things, like what, is, what are you? Well, if I ask you, if I say, well, okay, you're a, you're a, a brother and a, and an employee and a father and a son. What are you? What are you really? You see? And your answer would be, I'm all of those things. I'm the whole. Well, it's just the same sort of thing. It's not, what are you really? Well, I really am the whole. I'm the whole of that. I'm not any of those pieces. Those pieces are all just expressions of me. Parts of me, you know, where I go and express and act. And the, for the consciousness, these things are functions you have to perform. Well, sort of like that, too. You know, you're an employee. That's a function you have to perform because you need to pay the mortgage, buy food, keep your family from starving to death. So that's a function you have to perform so you're, you work. You're an employee, perhaps, or you own your own business, but whatever it is, you work. And uh, you have this function of being a parent because that's the way it is. If you are with a woman and you're whatever, you're going to end up being a parent probably, and that's just part of the way life is here. And so it is being a, a son. So they're all functions that are just natural to your existence, and you're all of them. And if I asked you, well, which one are you really? You see, you can't answer that. You're, you're not any one of those Really, you are all of them, really. And they're all part of your life. And your life would have less meaning in it if you took away any of them. Okay. Okay, I think I'm getting some more understanding. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
And uh, yeah, Greg, uh, thanks for mentioning uh, Tom's blogs on the speaking tree there. You know, we're trying to currently raise awareness of Tom and his work um, in India. And the speaking tree, which is a, a branch, excuse the pun, of the Times of India, is a very important um, aspect of that. It reaches an awful lot of people. So um, we do encourage people, if they haven't come across that too, to check that out, uh, speakingtree.in, like you said. Right, Tom, pathological altruism. <laughs> now, there's two words you don't often get to use together in a sentence on a regular basis. Um, Bartosz asks, Tom, in your experience and or opinion, is there such a thing as pathological altruism? That is, doing what is considered to be good or moral and helpful towards others that either harms the helper or possibly other people or enables harmful behavior by the helped or even produces no benefit in the long run despite immediate benefit. So what would your advice be on continuing or denying altruism from this perspective? What is the useful boundary between focusing on self rather than on the, on, than on the others in this virtual reality or in that matter, or for that matter, in any other? Okay, it's not a level of, of um, focus as it is a matter of intent. Okay, now, if you are doing good from the intellect, you're doing good from the ego, or even doing good from the fear, uh, then I would say, yes, that might be a dysfunctional altruism, and it may cause more harm than good. If it's something you think you should do, but it's not really a function of who you are, then it's not real. You're acting, not being. You're doing what's best for you, not what's best for somebody else. Okay, now... If you are really and truly coming from a place of love and caring, then altruism cannot be, um, uh, what was his word? Um, um, what did he call that, Keith? Uh, the altruism was, he didn't say defective or bad or wrong. Pathological. Pathological, yeah. The altruism might be pathological if you're not coming from a place of love. You see, if you're coming from a place of ego, then it could be pathological. But if you're coming from a path of love, it can't be pathological. Now, why is that? Because you care about the other people. You're doing it because it's about them. So if you look at them and you say, well, if I do, if I do these, this nice thing, if I give them this sort of help, what will that do to them? How helpful will it be? And if it turns out that that just makes you an enabler of their lack of growth, well, then that's not being helpful to them, you see. So then somebody who was truly altruistic, cared about other people, going from a position of love, wouldn't make those kinds of mistakes that they would do things, um, you know, that they thought was an advantage that really were a disadvantage to those people. They'd have to understand the effect of what they were doing on those people and take that into account. Sometimes it's not helpful to give people what they want. Sometimes it's helpful for them to deal with that themselves. Sometimes it is helpful to give people what they want. And you can't make a rule that says, you know, here are the situations, here are the physical situations in which you can give people what they want, and here are the situations in which you can't. It's not situation-based. It's not a matter of doing. It's a matter of understanding at the being level what the entropy is going to look like long term, whether you do that or don't do, you know, 
this action. So if you give people just what they want, but in the long run, that raises entropy, then that's not a good thing to do. That's not altruism. Then you're hurting people. So, so as long as you come from the position of love and you're caring about other people, then you won't make that mistake. You'll look forward. And if you do make that mistake, you'll quickly learn from it and not make it again. So it's all self-correcting. Now, if you're acting, if you're doing things because that makes you look good or maybe gets you more votes or uh, you know, works off a, a, a um, you know, guilt that you have or works off a fear that you have or you think you're uh, storing up credits in uh, heaven so you'll get a fancier harp, you know, all these sorts of things. If that's your motivation, then, yes, you might just run over people, do things that aren't helpful, uh, give them things they don't need, uh, become an enabler of bad behavior, all sorts of problems that, uh, that uh, would come from your altruism, you see. But that's not really altruism. That's pretend altruism. That's acting altruistic, not being altruistic. If it comes from really caring about others, which is really at the heart of what altruism is defined as, if it really is about your love and about your caring of others, then altruism won't be negative. It'll be positive. Um, continuing on with the subject of helping others, uh, Tony has a couple of questions. The first two questions are not about the helping others, but if you can answer those, we'll go on to the other ones in a second. Um, he says, uh, so living a meaningful life or finding one's own destiny is all about lowering entropy. So how do I know if my decision or if my decisions are lowering entropy? Well, the best way to know is by looking at the results. In the book, I talk about that in terms of tasting the pudding. You have to look at the results and see are they lower entropy results or higher entropy results. Look at yourself and all the people you interact with, all the people and things and critters and everything you interact with. How is that going? Is it not changed? Is it uh, a happier, better, more productive uh, relationships that you have? And just look at that. And that will tell you whether or not you are, are succeeding or just think you're succeeding. Tricking yourself into thinking you're succeeding. So taste the pudding. See how it's affecting your life. This is real stuff. This isn't just stuff you know, that we cerebrally chit-chat uh, about. This is stuff that changes your life. It affects your life. It affects everything you do. All of your relationships, your connections, uh, your career, everything is involved in this. So it's not intellectual uh, you know, exercise. This is an exercise in changing your reality, growing up. And it becomes obvious if you grow up significantly, then it's not only obvious to you, it should be obvious to everybody else as well. So you just check. Ask people. Say, do you th think I'm any different now than I was, you know, two years ago? And, you know... If the change has been very, very slow, it may take them a while to think what the difference was between you now and two years ago because they really didn't notice an abrupt change. Well, generally, you don't have abrupt changes. But the changes should be significant enough that you and other people notice. How's your life going? Are you no longer angry, upset, stressed? Well, that would be a good sign. If you're just as angry, upset, frustrated, and stressed as you ever were, well, that means you're probably not growing up too much. 
Right. Um, his other questions, Tom, about helping others is, uh, how much should I risk my own life to save somebody else's? For example, if a friend needs a kidney and I'm taking a risk there, should I give it to him? Well, that depends on you and your friend, all the rest of your responsibilities. And you know, it, that's, a, that's not a decision that, that uh, somebody can make for everyone. In other words, we can't just say, well, in that case, everyone should give their kidney to their friend. It depends on the circumstances. It's very individual, and uh, you have to take that. There are some risks, but unless you just are a single person that lives in a cave, you have relationships and connections and other people that depend on you and whatever, and your risks, of course, flow down to them as risks as well. And you have to take the whole thing into account and weigh the upside, helping your friend, uh, and the downside of you know, how all these risks might play out, and then you have to decide what's the low entropy solution to all of that. So that's your decision you have to make. So you juggle that the best you can and then decide what, uh, what would be the best course of action. And generally you can tell because when you come to the right decision, suddenly you feel peace and everything seems to be all right and you don't have a lot of questions. If you still or questioning yourself, ah, I don't know, is that right, is that not right? I came to this decision, but I'm still not really sure. Then the decision, decision was probably an intellectual one rather than one from the being level, and you probably ought to continue to consider it and see if you can't uh, come up with one that's more fundamental to your being. But, yeah, one of those things that you have to decide. No, no right or wrong answer for, the, for that altogether. It's not like, yes, of course, you should always give your friend your kidney. Well, that's probably not a good idea if you've got a whole bunch of people downstream that really depend on you and they would be in a world of hurt if uh, you didn't, uh, you know, if you weren't able to maintain that, that support they require. Then uh, you have to consider that as part of your risk, their risk as well as your risk. And, of course, there's also medical risks in the sense of, uh, you know, are you allergic to anesthesia? Um, you know, does your kidney make a perfect match or is it just a sort of okay match that might work but might not? So there's a lot of other things you have to take into consideration of the upside and all the downsides and then do the low entropy choice. Right. So the, basically the circumstances are different for everyone, like Absolutely. so many things in this life, of course. Yes. It's, not, it's not cut and dried. Um, yeah. Okay. On the subject of organ donation, Julie Kay has the following three-parter. Um, Tom, what are your thoughts on organ donation during the lifetime of the individual as well as right before full brain death? Does the consciousness stay connected to the body organs in a way that limits its continued evolutional progression? And does the con consciousness feel pain or discomfort when it continues to be tied to a part of its former body, but it's in another person's body? No, none of those things are really problems. Organ donation is just whether or not you're in a situation where you have good, healthy organs and you're not going to need them anymore, whether you know, donate them to, to somebody else. Um, yes, when you get an organ uh, from somebody else, that organ is used to being in somebody else and it does carry a little bit of, the, of that person because it is how it is, configured how it's configured operates how it operates because of its environment where it's been it's been in somebody else so when you get that then you will get a little piece of somebody else that will now become a part of you and that 
maybe will affect your moods, uh, the way you think about things, and, and other things. You know, the body is very connected. Body and mind are all very tightly connected. So there may be connections there. But no, it's not a problem. That uh, new kidney that you get will eventually become yours. It will adapt to your environment and the way you do things and the food that you eat and the way that you think. So any kind of, of uh, influences that you get from, from taking in somebody else's body part into your body is temporary. It's not going to be a, a permanent thing. It's something that in years, I mean, it may be for years, but in, in time, it will, it will change to whatever your environment is. You will still dominate the environment. And vice versa, no, when you leave a body part with somebody else because you don't need it anymore, there's no connection there that now you're somehow, you know, held back by, you know, that person and the fact that some of your body's there. The body's just a virtual body. Body doesn't really exist. It's just ones and zeros. It's, it's numbers in a computer. That's all it is. So by shuffling stuff around, okay, you take some of the information with it. Some of those ones and zeros define what that, you know, what that body part is. And some of that information goes into the new body. And that information then will mingle or mix or interact with whatever information it finds in its new environment. But it's not a problem. for, for the. There's no downside to donating. I guess the big downside is, is the fact that if you're donating, obviously you don't need the parts anymore, and that's not good news. But uh, other than that, <laughs> I don't really see uh, any downside. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that, Tom, as you was answering that question. You know, the thing we've talked about, the virtual brain, I figured that the rest of the body was virtual. So, uh, <laughs> But that doesn't mean we can't give it away, right? I mean, we, we can't right. just give it away because it doesn't exist. We, we've really got to, again, make sure that there is uh, not uh, consequences of an action. Right. Yeah, well, there's no there's no negative consequences to being a body donor other than the fact that you you know have gotten to the point where being a a body part donor is a is, is a good. is a good question you know a good thing to to think about you know if you're to that point where that becomes something you really need to think about then you're probably uh, not doing too well yourself but other than that there's right. no there's no issues with 